So if you want to open your Bible to John chapter 3, we're going to look at John chapter 3 tonight. The title of the message is going to be The New Birth. We'll begin in John chapter 3 in verse 1. And reading there, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said unto him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and now hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell from where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, Well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you a master, a master teacher of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll take these words, words of life, and direct them to all of our hearts. For those, Lord, that don't know you, I ask that you'll give them ears to hear and hearts that are open to receive your word, and it can make that change that needs to take place, Lord, so that they can enter the kingdom of God. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. He says in verse 3 there, except a man be born again. That expression is such a worn out expression these days or whatever. You know, born again, Christian, 41% of all American adults now will say they are born again Christians. That was a 2004 poll. It's probably, I don't know if it's higher or lower at this point, the way people are kind of abandoned in churches. But the first president of the United States to say that he was a, quote, born again Christian was Jimmy Carter back in 1976. And the next year, all three candidates that ran for president in 1980, they all claimed to be born again. And it just kind of became an expression to where at one point, you know, that was like, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, but are you a born again Christian? Well, that meant you were that different kind of person. The, the one that was more sold out was the way I looked at it. And it's just changed to where just anybody will say they're a born again Christian anymore. It's almost become a meaningless phrase in that sense. You know, you have a lot of these musicians, Ted Nugent. Uh, you know, Charlie Daniels, Johnny Cash, Alice Cooper, of all people. I'm probably dating myself naming these people, but I mean, they all at one point, Bob Dylan. And I went to a Bob Dylan concert when he was born again, had this experience that lasted a year. 
that's all he played was his Christian songs and his concerts went from being sold out to where people were, would actually walk out and leave during the middle of them. But that lasted about a year and then he was back to whatever else. So that just happens a lot of times. These celebrities become quote unquote born again. It's short lived. And it's like everybody's born again. It's become meaningless, but it's not really meaningless, is it? I mean, Jesus gave it a lot of meaning. But I think, you know, most people I think would define, if you ask them, are you a born again Christian? They just would look at that as, well, I'm somebody, yeah, I'm born again. I mean, I believe the Bible is true. And I prayed this prayer back when a lot of people, you know, do it when you're six, seven, eight, prayed this prayer. And then since then, I've just tried to live a good life, be the best person I can, obey the Ten Commandments, do do good to my neighbor. And that's what they consider to be a born again Christian. But is that really how the New Testament would define a born again believer? I don't think so. I think it's a little bit more than that. We look here in verse 1, and actually it's kind of a funny way this is worded, I think. He doesn't just say one of the Pharisees. How does John word that? He said, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And why does he use that expression, a man? Well, he's actually kind of tying in. Now, they didn't have chapter and verses back when they wrote the New Testament. It just was all one continuous book. But he's actually referring back to what was written at the end of chapter 2, where it says, verse 23, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem, this is chapter 2, John 2, 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But it said, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Why? It says, because it says he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man. For it says, for he knew what was in man. Now, I'll tell you, you think about that. He knows everything about us. If you're in here and you are secretly living a wicked life, that is not being hid from him. That would be a source of terror. It always was to me in my own regenerate days. But on the other hand, for us, if you're living to walk with him and you've given your life to him, it's a source of comfort. He knows what's in us. That's what he's saying. He knows, man, we're not going to fool him. It's the same here with Nicodemus. He's saying he knew what was in this man, this man of the Pharisees. He's a different kind of man. He's really religious. He's a member of the upper class, isn't he? So you meet a lot of different characters in the Bible. So there's not too many of these people that come to the Lord, are they? That's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians. It says, not many noble, not many mighty, not many, not many, but there's some. And Nicodemus here is one of the some. Here he is, he comes to Jesus by night, and we don't know the exact reason because it doesn't tell us. And there's a lot of surmising about why he came at night. It might have been that he was scared to be seen by other Pharisees, seen talking to Jesus, seen asking him questions in that way. It might have been he just wanted to get to Jesus when he was all alone, when Jesus isn't busy during the day and he's going to come to him at night. It's just me and him, and I can ask him what I want to ask him and get an answer without anybody interrupting. But I think when it says that he comes to him at night or in darkness, in John, in the Gospel of John, night represents the works of darkness. And look in that same chapter 3, look down in verses 19 to 21. It says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought of God. I believe Nicodemus, he's not a saved person at this point. He's a man in darkness, but he is coming to the light, isn't he? 
He's what would be known, what I would call, he's an inquirer. He's seeing something different about this person, Jesus, and he's wanting to know more about it. But he's coming at night. I don't know how it was for you, but before I actually gave my heart to the Lord, before I actually prayed that prayer of commitment, I was like him. I was living in darkness, but I had a lot of questions, and I started inquiring, started asking, to pray to the Lord, hey, if you're real, show me who you are, and, and honestly praying that, not just like, <laughs> I didn't mean it, I meant it, and started searching and inquiring. And I think that's what's going on here with Nicodemus. He comes to the Lord, sees that Jesus, he says, you're a teacher like I am, putting himself on the same level, calls him rabbi, teacher. And Jesus turns the table, he says, and you're a great teacher. He says that later on, we read that. And you're coming and asking and you don't have understanding. But he sees there is something different about Jesus. And I think he's looking at it like, to him, there's something about the Lord that what he's able to do, it can be taught him. It's an idea, it's a philosophy. There's something, teacher, you can teach me. I see the things you're doing, and only someone that, that's related to God can do that. Can you help me do what you're doing? You know, that's the way he's coming. Because the difference between those two teachers is Jesus is doing miracles, and Nicodemus is only seeing them. What do we read at the end of that last chapter 2? It says that Jesus knows man, knows what is in man, and he knows Nicodemus' heart. What does that tell us, too? Another thing, if he knows our heart, what does that mean? A lot of times we think we know what we need, and we really don't, do we? He knows what we need, and he knows what Nicodemus needs. He knows what he's asking for, but he knows what he really needs here. So he's saying, hey, I can see you are a man that's impressed with miracles. You're impressed with the fact I'm doing all these miracles. And Jesus, in a sense, he just cuts him off in his question. He never directly answers his question, does he? He just cuts him off in mid-sentence. Look what it says here in verse 3. He had ended, for no man can do these miracles you do, except God be with him. And Jesus just cuts him off. He answered and said to him, well, truly, truly, I say unto you, I mean, we're not going to talk about these miracles, Nick. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Because what's the problem here? Nicodemus, it's, to put it this way, I heard a man say, he's trying to go on before he's gotten started. If you understand what I'm saying. He's wanting to be this big, deep, having all these miracles, signs, wonders, whatever, and he hasn't even gotten to the starting point yet. Hasn't even gotten to the starting blocks. Or you could put it this way. He's trying to grow before he was born. That's like a person trying to grow before they've been born. He's looking for spiritual answers, spiritual truth, and he hasn't had this birth take place yet. And that's what happens a lot of times in groups like ours, and we all need to listen up, especially young people. You grow up, and a brother was talking about it last night. You grow up, and you learn to do right things, to be religious, and you're assuming everything's okay. You're assuming you're a Christian, and maybe you have never really had that born-again experience. You're like Nicodemus here, a religious person. And just because you're born into a Christian family, just because you're basically an ethical person, there's a lot of ethical people that want nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. That in and of itself doesn't prove anything. Jesus is telling him, look, Nick, you know, your concern shouldn't be the power and the miracles. It shouldn't be like the Pharisees. Are you going to overthrow the Roman Empire? He's telling Nicodemus that more than anything else, 
your number one concern is you have got to be born again. He told the disciples they are so happy that they're able to go out in his name and do all these healings, perform healings, cast out demons, all these great works, didn't they? And they came back and Jesus like, that stuff's fine. Obviously setting people free, nothing wrong with that. But what did he tell them? Saying, this is what you should really be rejoicing over. And we all need to not forget this. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice because why? Your name is written in heaven. You've got an entrance into heaven. It's a man noticed one morning, he picks up the newspaper. He noticed his name is in the death column of the newspaper. He's like, what in the world is going on here? They've got me buried and I'm reading this newspaper. So he calls up the newspaper. He wants to find out what's going on. Why is my name in the obituary column? The guy that answers the phone on the other end, he says, well, just, just a second. He goes, I'll find out and go see what it's all about. The guy gets back on the line. He's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we got your name in the, in the wrong column. We made a mistake. He said, but don't worry. In the paper tomorrow, we are going to put your name in the birth column. <laughs> but listen, isn't that, in a sense, isn't that what happens to us when we become born again? Our name is taken out of heaven's death column, and we are written in the birth column of the Lamb's Book of Life? Amen. That is what happens. But Jesus is talking there directly to Nicodemus, isn't he? He says, truly, truly, I say unto thee. I'm not talking in general terms, and here they're having a one-on-one conversation. I'm talking to you, Nicodemus. I'm talking to you, except a man be born again. That word born again, there's different interpretations of how that word should be translated. Some will say, and you'll find this in your different translations, some say it means born again, and some say it means born from above. And I would say, yes, they're both true. He means it in both senses, John says. And Leon Morris, this commentator, said this. He says, the man who would enter the kingdom of God must be born in a radically new fashion, and this second birth is from heaven. And that covers both grounds, doesn't it? Born again, and it has to come from heaven. And he says, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And that word see is a word that means experience. If you don't have that second birth, you will never experience the kingdom of God. Without that new birth from above, and that is more than a prayer, that you said some prayer and you're just trying to be, but man, I'm just all the time, I'm, I'm living in sin. Uh, that new birth will give you a new nature. It puts new principles in your life, new affections, new aims. All of that should be there. Because what do we read back in John 3, 19 to 20? That men wouldn't come to the light. The light's there. It's not something, some revelation we need. It's the light is there to come to. And why wouldn't they? It's because they have a love and affection for darkness. And that's what the new birth does. It changes you right in the core. It's not this outward, I'm going to, you know, turn over a new leaf. This is not New Year's Eve. I'm going to make these resolutions that you can never keep. That's not what the new birth's all about. Nicodemus says, to get to heaven by just saying a prayer, by just trying to be a good person, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to deceive you on this like a lot of people do. You know, well, didn't you say a prayer back when you were six? Oh, you're just probably having a hard time right now. 
He says, no. He says, it is impossible. You cannot. You will not be able to experience the, the kingdom of God. That's what it says there. That word cannot, it's our word dunamis with a non in front of it. It's impossible, no way, to see the kingdom of God without the new birth. Because here's the reason why. A person without a changed heart, without a changed nature, they not only won't experience it, they will hate it. That's what we just read. Men love darkness and they hate the light. That's the way all of us are born into this world. And here's the reason, because you've still got a nature that is drawn, attracted, desires sin. And guess what won't be in the heavenly kingdom? There is not going to be any sin. So a person that hasn't had a changed nature, as I've heard this many times, would be miserable in heaven. It's a kingdom of holiness because you're not going to be able to lust. There won't be any pornography there. There won't be any fighting, no anger, no violence, no foul language, no stealing, no drugs, no drinking, no gossip, no backbiting. Name it. There will be no sin in heaven. Only those with the renewed nature are going to be allowed to be there because, for one thing, it's going to be a place of holiness. No sin will enter. They will be the only ones that will want to be there is the way it will be. And here's the point. If we're not living a truly holy life now, then we wouldn't want to live it then. And if you don't like holiness now, dying's not going to change that. Our nature has to be changed. The problem is not the environment we live in, is it? Where is the problem if there is one? It's right in here. It's the heart. All the environment does is just show us what's in our heart, doesn't it? The world we live in is just a proving ground, a testing ground. So like I said, men that love darkness will hate the light and they'll hate the kingdom of God. If you're in here and you're not saved, does that bother you? That's the question. You know, are you convicted? Do you know in your heart? I really do. I know I love darkness. If I'm honest about it, I love darkness. And the fact that you know you're going to perish, does that not bother you? It should. You know, the thief on the cross, what did he tell that other thief? They're both railing on Jesus at one point. And the one God opens his eyes, he supernaturally, by his Holy Spirit, opens his eyes, bring conviction, changes his heart. The wind blew on that man. And what did he say to the other guy that kept going on? He goes, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God by the way you've lived and the way you're dying and where you're headed? Don't you fear God? We're getting justly what we deserve. This man has done nothing. Don't you fear God? Because we all should. Nicodemus, he doesn't understand Jesus' words. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, Nicodemus said unto him, unto Jesus, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's saying, you know, I'm an old man. He's an older man by now, you know, and he knows that his life a man's life has been shaped by his family background, his doubts, his fears, his habits, his culture, and so on. And he's saying, are you telling me that it's possible for me at my age to just start over as a baby? Is that what you're saying? Is it possible for that to happen, teacher? There's a lot of people that they just think, man, if I could just start all over again, if I could have been born with a different mother in a different house, in a different environment, I wouldn't be the way I am. My past just drags me down. That's not what Jesus is saying, is it? 
He's saying because you're no different than everybody. Everybody's got their little idiosyncrasies. I call them idiosyncrasies. They got their little idiosyncrasies, their little sins that draw them away. But really, everybody that's born into this world has the core problem. It's the same with everyone. And what is that? A sinful nature. And that's what he's talking about here. Because he's saying you could go back, Nick, and go back and start all over, be born again. And guess what? You're going to come out the same way. Because the physical is not the problem. It's not a matter of getting back and being born again in that way. But as a Jew, especially a upper crust religious Jew like Nicodemus is, he's not thinking that there's anything wrong. He doesn't understand. He doesn't think there's anything wrong with his first birth. And most of the Jews thought that. They thought all we have to do is try to keep the law, try to do what we're told, try to do what our church says to do, and everything will be fine. That's not what the Lord's telling him. And that's why when Jesus told the Jews in John 8, he says, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they're like, what are you talking about? We've never been in bondage to any man. We're Abraham's seed. We were born into Shelbyville Christian Assembly. My parents raised us as Christians. They pray for us. I made this confession of faith. What are you talking about? They were sure the Jews were being born into the Jewish race, that their future was set. Abraham's seed, God was their father, and we have no worries. That's really what they did believe. And Jesus told them what? I mean, they got pretty upset. He says, no, no. He says, and this is what we all need to think about. He's saying, no, if God was your father, if he really was your father in Abraham, you're a true descendant of Abraham, you would love me. You wouldn't be out to kill me. And so they proved who their father was by what they loved, he said, and what you do. That just proves who your father, they were in bondage to sin. Slaves to sin. And what is the thing that will set us free? What did Jesus say? The truth will set us free. Jesus has to tell Nicodemus, he's like, I've got to straighten this out for you. I don't want your thinking messed up here, Nicodemus. I'm not talking about a physical birth. And that's what he says in verses 5 and 6. Jesus answered, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus should have known this because he's not really introducing something new, a new idea, a new concept. Jesus isn't. This was all back in the Old Testament, what it meant to be born again by water and spirit. If you would put something there and just turn back to Ezekiel, we'll look at two places in Ezekiel to see this and turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, and we'll read verses 24, 25, and 26, 27. Beginning in verse 24, Ezekiel 36, he writes, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. And he says, Then I will do what? I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And he says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Uh, back in verse 25, he says there he's going to do what? It's spiritually he's talking. He's not talking about literal water. He's saying, I'll sprinkle clean water. I'll cleanse you. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness. 
before you come to the Lord, even if you've never done drugs, slept around, done any of that stuff, you've still sinned in, in your thoughts, in your mouth, and you've had hate and bitterness and anger and envy, all of those things. Anybody in here has had that. And it leaves you unclean. And God says, I will spiritually wash you from that uncleanness. That's what he's saying here in Ezekiel 36. He'll do that. And that's where we have this song we sung in the past, Titus 3, 5. It's not by works. So how do we clean ourselves up? Do we clean ourselves up by saying, man, I know I've had a bad mouth. I know I've done this. I know I've been looking at pornography. I'm just going to slide it all away and that I'm going to be clean. No, that's not how it happens, does it? Or I'm going to try to be a better person. Because Titus tells us, Titus 3, 5 says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God has to do it. Only God can do it. We can't clean ourselves up. And if you'll look at the other place, so that is the washing of regeneration, the washing. And if you'll turn over to Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 37, and look beginning in verse 9. And it says, Then he said unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain. Why? What will that breath of God do that they may live? And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. And he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried, our hope is lost, and we are cut off for our parts. Therefore, he says, prophesy. And in other words, they're dead. And if you're in any way spiritually dead, what has to happen? Can't make ourselves alive. The Spirit of God has to breathe on us, doesn't he? And that's how the song, the old hymn, it's a great hymn. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. Because that's where life is. It's in the Spirit of God. Amen. But he said, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore, prophesy, saying to them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He's saying, we're dead. Isn't that what Paul said, Ephesians 2? You are dead and your trespasses is sin. And Christ had to do what? Breathe his spirit on us, wash us clean, and breathe his spirit in us and give us life. And that's what it says there in Ezekiel. I mean, that's a beautiful portion of scripture there, I think, in saying that. A washing from our uncleanness and a new heart given by the spirit. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus that you need. That's what has to happen. Back to John 3, look what he says here in verse 6. That Well, we read it, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So the flesh can produce nothing other than what it is. And it all comes from where? Where does our flesh? It goes all the way back to dear old Adam. When Adam was cut off from God and his nature became corrupt and unholy, that's all we, he could ever produce from there on out. Every person born into this world, that's, I'm not telling you anything new. 
But that's the way it is, isn't it? That's how serious it is. And only God can give us life. And that's what the new birth is. David said this, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So you say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but the kingdom of God is not flesh, is it? What is it? It's spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. And to enter that kingdom, we have to have, Jesus says, a spiritual birth. And by that spiritual birth, like I said, that takes away. We're going to keep the law. We're going to do good works. And that's what the Pharisees and Nicodemus and a lot of people, whether we want to admit it or not, we tend to think we're justified because of how we're living sanctified. Well, I'm right with God because of how I'm doing. No, we're always right with God because of what Jesus did. That's always the case because, well, otherwise you're going to be like the Catholics. I grew up as a Catholic. The Catholics tie in their justification, their being righteous before God with their sanctification, with how they're living, how holy they are. So your justification grows as your holiness grows. Some people get to be to the point to where they can leave this world. They're saints. Everyone else that didn't quite make it to be justified, they got to go to purgatory. And you never have any assurance of your salvation. And that's not what it's all about, is it? It's not. Because Jesus said in Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed with himself. God, I thank you I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican, because here's what I do. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, there's nothing wrong with tithing, fasting, praying, is there? But when you make that the basis of your justification before God, you got a problem. So Nicodemus, he's having trouble with all this because his whole way of thinking is it's what I do that determines my right standing and my right to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells him in verse 7, he says, marvel not. Don't be shocked, Nicodemus, that I say unto you, you must be born again. Don't be astonished. Don't be all upset. Don't be disturbed. Because <laughs> he's like, man, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're applying. But he's saying you must be born again. And that must, there's two must in these verses we read. And one of them, it means it is a necessity. Without it, you will not see or experience the kingdom of God, period. It is crucial. And by that, he is saying the past has got to be destroyed. The old man, the old sinful nature has to be destroyed. That's what the cross is all about. And a new life has got to be implanted, birthed into our soul by the Holy Spirit. And that is a tremendous thing that takes place. And it's not going to happen without you knowing it. You'll know that that change has taken place. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation Old things, he says, are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And what's he saying? He's saying it's a creation that takes place. The only thing that's even comparable to it is the creation of the universe. But who created the universe? God spoke and created it out of nothing. He is the only one that can create the new birth in us. Only he can do that. That change, it can't be seen. We don't know how it happens, do we? That's what he tells him. I can't explain it to you, Nicodemus. I just, all you can see is the effect of it. The effect of it. Turn over to Ephesians 4, if you would. 
This is the change that should take place. The old man should be gone, we're saying. Should be put off, destroyed. Verse 17 of Ephesians 4. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being cut off or alienated from life. This is what we're talking about. This is the essential thing of Christianity. It's life that is given to us, the life of God. But the Gentiles, the unregenerate, are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, but you haven't learned Christ that way. If so be you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former lifestyle, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. And here will be the evidence of the new birth and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be you angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. And let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And that's the change that has to take place. To put off that old man and to put on the new and to live that way. Only a transformed heart and life can do that. It's a supernatural work that happens. Back in John 3, when that happens, all will notice what's taken place. All will notice the effects and that's what he's saying in verse 8. The wind blows where it listeth, and you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it came from or whether it goes. And so is everybody that is born of the Spirit. You can hear the wind. You can see its effects. You know it exists. You don't know where its origins are, where it came from, where it's going. But you can see the effects of somebody that is born again, that is saved. And you can see the joy, the changed life that should take place there. You can't see the Spirit. The Spirit is invisible. It's in them. But you can definitely see the effects of totally changed life. If you go through 1 John, you're questioning, am I really truly born again? Well, 1 John gives you about five or more tests. And he actually says that, born again. 1 John 2.9, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. So if you're born of him, he says you will do righteousness. Living the Sermon on the Mount. Not living in anger, lust, loving your enemies, fasting, praying, giving in secret, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, and on and on and on. That's the way you'll live your life. And that takes a supernatural change to take place because Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds, far exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you'll no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
In other words, that evidence has to be there. You don't do those things. You don't do the Sermon on the Mount to earn a right into heaven. But he's saying that's the way a saved person filled with the Spirit will live. That's what will characterize your life, which that is heart living there. And the Pharisees didn't have that because they didn't have a heart for the Lord. And that's how it'll show. 1 John 3, 9 says, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, John Wesley would turn that into sinless perfection. Obviously, we know that's not the case. Probably everybody in here has missed it in some way today, but what he's saying is you will not habitually do what you know is wrong. If that's the case, you need to seriously consider whether you've been born of God or or seriously backslidden one or the other. Sin is not a way of life. Read it again. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. It's a present continuous tense. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, for everyone that loves is born of God. So we have to ask ourselves, are we a loving person? Are we kind? Are we patient? Do we envy? Do we think evil of others? Do you help others when you see a need? And that's one way you can tell. Or are you just a selfish person? Everything you do is based on, well, this is what I want to do. I'm just really not that concerned. All your concerns are for yourself. That's the opposite of love, isn't it? 1 John 5, 1 says, Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's your prophet, your priest, and your king. You're trusting in his blood as your priest. You're obeying the words that he spoke. You're taking it as from God himself. He's your prophet. And he's your king. He's your Lord. You obey what he says. He says, everyone that's born of God, Jesus will be their Christ. He'll be their Messiah. And last, 1 John 5, 4 says, whosoever is born of God will overcome the world. Whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And he also had said earlier in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world has its music, it has its entertainment, its greed, its competition, its politics, it has everything that's of the world. And he's saying, whosoever is born of God will overcome all of that, overcome the world and the way it's trying to drag you down and its ungodliness. Because he went on to say the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God will abide forever, enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. That's the way it'll be. So the question is, are you born from above? Have you or I been born by the Spirit of God? Has your nature been changed? Are you a new person from what you were before you professed to be a Christian? Has your old man been demolished or are you just trying to improve him? Jesus said we can tell how. How can we tell? We can tell by their fruits. Amen? So somebody that knew you before, they should see a definite change that took place, whoever you are. You can ask young people, they can't hide it too well from each other, and they'll say, well, such and such, they really are a Christian. And such and such, they really aren't. They may say they are, they may have gotten baptized, but they really aren't. Y'all, young people, I know how it is. I was a young teenager once. You don't play games with, everyone knows who's who. Isn't that kind of the way it works? So what's the cure? What's the cure if you honestly admit And there's some in here who have to honestly admit they do not know the Lord and they're not living for the Lord. You know, they asked Charles Spurgeon, when you say only God can do that change, 
Someone asked him once, they said, well, don't you think you're going to discourage people from wanting to be Christians by saying there's nothing they can do and only God can do it? And here was his answer. His answer, I'll tell you what that will discourage, to say that God sovereignly has to birth you. He says that'll discourage you from trusting in yourself. It'll discourage you and them from trusting in their good works or from trusting in someone else. And what it will do is cause all of us to cast ourselves wholly on the mercy of God. And when we sense his spirit convicting us, dealing with us, we had better not harden our hearts. There should be a fear in there because that is God that is working in us. So it's not we don't respond, but it's him that brings conviction. It's him that opens our eyes to see our state and where we're headed. And we're headed to an eternal hell. And it's him that brings the words, unless you repent and turn from your sins, you will perish. The Spirit pierces your heart with those words. And then it brings you the hope that if you do that, whosoever believeth in him, trust in him, just commit yourself to me. You do that no matter who you are, no matter how dark your past is. He said, I will not cast you out. Whosoever will commit themselves, believe in me, will have everlasting life. But seeing all of that clearly, the ability to repent from your sins is a gift from God. Because if you're sitting in here today knowing you're in sin and thinking, I'm not doing a thing about this. I've heard all that before. That's a dangerous place to be in. It really is. Today, if you hear his voice, it says, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. There's books out there that it used to be when people died, they weren't drugged. They knew what was going on. And I've read account after account of young people that we were talking last night. There was this young girl. She'd been to a dance. God was dealing with her at this evangelistic meeting. And she's in tears. And her dad told her, he said, if you become a Christian, I'm taking you out of my will. And so she decided right then in her heart, she told the Lord, she, I mean, she was ready to give her heart to the Lord. She said, leave me alone. I don't want you to ever come back. And he didn't. Two weeks later, she's on her deathbed. And her parents, her mother was a Christian, pleading with her. Give you, and she said, I can't. I can't repent. And she knew she couldn't. Because it's a gift. You don't want to be in that state. You don't want to be the person that hits a tree because you're out drinking, thinking you're having a good time. And you are old enough to know right from wrong. And God has spoken to your heart. You don't want to break your parents' heart. That's what the Lord said. So what's the answer? What is the answer? We're back in John 3. Look what it says in verse 14. This is the other must. He said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, must. It was necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever, verse 15, believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those Israelites out there, they've been bit by those fiery serpents. They realize there is nothing we can do. We're helpless. We can't help ourselves. God, have mercy on us. And He provided. He said He must be lifted up, just like that serpent, or there was no hope. That's the other must, isn't it? And we can be thankful for that one, can't we? But he said, whosoever will look to that serpent, you're in your sin, you're wallowing in your sin, you don't have to die in your sin. Look to the cross. That's where the hope is. That's where salvation is. So you feel that burning weight of sin in your heart today? You long, do you long to be cured of a sinful heart?
He only can bring you to that place. Cry out to him. He'll give you a new one and look to the cross. And that's where you will find what? That's where you find mercy. You see God's judgment on sin. That's where you see how much he hates sin, but you also see how much he loves us, that he was willing to take our place. Amen. That's just something we should never get over. Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. It has to happen. The new birth has to happen or we'll perish forever. Look what it says down in verse 36 of John 3. It says, he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life. But what does it say? Those are strong words at the end of that. It says, but the wrath of God abides on him presently. Those that aren't believers, the wrath of God, it says, abide on him. But the gospel, the truth is that God so loved the world that he gave, didn't he? Just like he gave him the serpent. He came and he gave us a way to live. And it cost him his most precious gift. We've talked about that before. So you know how precious a gift is, not so much by its value, but what it costs the person to give it to you, don't you? You know, one time I stayed with this couple back when I was 20 years old. They were a few years older than me. They had nothing. I stayed with them living in one big room. But these people, when I left, I mean, I was just a selfish, unregenerate, whatever. These people, they said, we want to give you a gift as our friend. And they gave me this plaque. That plaque was probably, it probably didn't cost five bucks, but that was a lot of money for them. I never got over that. I thought, I should be the one giving you a gift. And I thought, they gave me a gift. I mean, I kept that thing. I think I still have it. I don't know. But I kept that thing forever. Not because it was such a gorgeous, beautiful, expensive item, but because of what it cost them to give it to me. That was a real sacrifice. And that touched me. And that's what God has done here. God has given us such a precious gift. And it is beyond estimation. Jesus is, isn't he? In his beauty, his glory, he's God himself. But look what it cost the Father to give him and what it cost him to sacrifice himself for us. Amen. Undeserving, hateful sinners that we were. The value of what Jesus did and who he was and his sacrifice is beyond anything that we can imagine. That's unselfish sacrifice that we'll never understand. We'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And that unspeakable means indescribable. It's inexpressible. The value of that gift that he gave us. Thanks be to God. That's the thing. If you'll only turn from your sins and give your life to him, you can experience that. And you can experience this life that he's telling Nicodemus about. And you can experience then the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And Father, I do pray, Lord, for anyone in here that doesn't know you, Lord, I'd ask that tonight will be the night when you'll bring them to a point of conviction and grant them the gift of repentance, Lord, that they can commit their their hearts and their lives to you and cry out to you for mercy that only you can change a heart and you will change their hearts. They'll only ask you to do it, Lord, in sincerity and repentance. I'd ask you to do that, Father. And for those of us, Lord, that do know you, we're just reminded, Lord, of the, the great sacrifice and the work that you've done for us and in us and that you have brought us from death to life. You've washed us of our uncleanness and you've breathed your spirit into us, Lord, and caused us to live. 
You spoke to us as we laid polluted in our blood by the side of the road. You cast your mantle over on us, and you spoke to us and said, live. And we thank you for that, Lord, for the life that you've given us by your spirit. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.